together and uh, we'll look in Ezra chapter number 9. Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9 is um, now the, the point in Scripture in, the, in Ezra. If you know anything about the book of Ezra, Ezra is one of those books that kind of straddles multiple books of the Bible during its time. Uh, two of those are Haggai and Zechariah. Uh, Nehemiah, we'll find also the, the works of Nehemiah being mentioned in the book of Ezra. And so uh, Ezra kind of covers and happens during all of these things. By Ezra 9, chapter 9, uh, the walls, the temple, all these things have already been rebuilt. Okay, and uh, But we see... Uh, there, there is a, there's something that happens with the people. And so, Ezra chapter 9, we're going to find ourselves also in the book of Nehemiah chapter 9 too. So, um, if you want to put your finger there, you can. We're going to catch the first verse here in Ezra and then we'll jump into Nehemiah. Ezra chapter 9 in verse number 1, the Word of God says, Now when these things were done, the princes came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations. And who are those people? Even the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. All of these people are, are people groups that had a, a negative influence upon the people, ones to whom that the, the Jews were to be separating themselves from, and quite honestly, had already separated themselves from. I'll kind of take you back in history to remember, okay? So, uh, here we have in Scripture, the Bible tells us of, uh, uh, the, uh, of the children of Israel having been slain by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians, the Bible tells us, uh, in, uh, in time after having taken the children of Israel into captivity, they are taken captive themselves by the Medes and the Persians, by Persia. And so we're talking 70 years of captivity the people have been in. And now the king of Persia comes up and he uh, writes a decree allowing all of the Jews to return back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. In the book of Nehemiah, we read of Nehemiah having the passion for the people and he goes back to rebuild the walls around the city. And Ezra is the preacher. He's the man that God used to orchestrate uh, to bring the people back to God. So we, were, we had initially, in the, even these past couple weeks, looked and considered the thought of how that the people returning, were returning back to a proper form of worship. That's what the picture of the temple truly is. They're returning back to a right form of worship, how God meant for it to be. And we apply that to ourselves, that God has a proper form of how we are to worship. And we're not talking about worship just in the house of God. Worship is an everyday part of our life. But we are to be worshiping God continually. In the midst of this coming back to God, we are un under the understanding of Scripture that there was only a remnant who went. And you remember, there was a remnant who went with Zerubbabel and Joshua. Not the same Joshua that the book of the Bible is named after, but Joshua, yet another man. And these two men helped to build first the foundation of the temple, but that work ceases, that work stops. Satan uses uh, uh, others even to orchestrate behind the scenes to cause that work to cease. And so for a great period of time, the foundation itself was all that was built. Haggai and Zechariah, as I mentioned, those minor prophets, they come in, Ezra chapter 5, the Bible tells us that they come in, they prophesy through their preaching, through their teaching. 
they instruct, they encourage, they challenge. The people pick themselves back up. They come out of their sealed houses. They build the temple. Nehemiah comes. They build the walls. Ezra chapter 9 comes. A revival has already taken place. Ezra 9 comes. The Bible tells us now the people have separated themselves again from God. Nehemiah chapter 9 is a very powerful passage of Scripture in that uh, we read of when Ezra actually came to Jerusalem. Now, Ezra helped to orchestrate much of that remnant's return, but he was not the first to go. Remember, that was Zerubbabel and Joshua. In Ezra chapter 9, we find uh, th that what has just previously taken place in chapter 8, he has preached to the people, and the people are having, truthfully, a revival. Uh, what is revival? It's something that's being brought back to life. They, they are stirred, they are challenged, they are encouraged by the preaching that's given uh, in the Word of God. In fact, just take a peek over, and if you're in Nehemiah, I hope that you are, Nehemiah 8, the Bible tells us in, in the end of verse 3 that all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. They're attentive to the Word of God. In verse 5, the Bible says, and all the people stood up at the end of the verse. There's a respect towards the Word of God. In verse 6, the Bible says, and all the people answered, Amen. Amen. There's a response towards the Word of God. In verse 7, the Bible tells us at the end of the verse that, uh, they, that they, um, Jeshua and all these people, they caused the people to understand. Uh, there, was a, there was, through all that was taking place, there was an understanding of the Word of God. And in verse number 9, this Bible says at the end of the verse, For all the people wept when they heard the word of the law. They not only heard it, but they applied it. God spoke to their heart. They were brought to a, a point of contrition and brought to the end of themselves. And in chapter 9, we see uh, yet a further and, and somewhat of a summary even of what's taking place. Look at Nehemiah 9, verse 1. Now in the twenty and fourth day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloths and earth upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood uh, and confessed their sins and iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord, their God, one fourth part of the day, and another fourth part they confessed and worshipped their God. I've marked some things in my Bible. If you want to do the same, I would encourage you to do so. The Bible tells us at the end of verse 1 of chapter 9, there was fasting with sackcloth. There was a proper preparation and positioning of themselves before God. That fasting is uh, a choosing to remove myself from that which would bring satisfaction in order and so that I can have a greater focus upon God. That sack, sack clothes is they're placing themselves in the position. Yes, there's culture and tradition that's integrating that, but essentially they were placing themselves in the position so that they were focused clearly upon what was on their minds. And what was on their minds? Verse 2, the seed of Israel separated themselves. In Ezra chapter 9, that's not what we see. In fact, they separate themselves in the wrong way. But there's a separation that they take place. And what do they do? They confess their sins. The same verse. They separate. They confess. In verse 3, the Bible tells us that they worship. Oh, there's revival taking place. And I thought it interesting as I was reading in uh, the book of Ezra and preparing for this morning and revival being, our revival meetings just being around the corner uh, we, we, I, I don't tr truly believe it's anything but the Lord that we find ourselves on the subject of revival. But understand this, revival took place in Nehemiah 8 and Nehemiah 9. 
The book of Nehemiah continues into chapter uh, 13. And it, we won't have time this morning to read it uh, all the way through. But the Bible tells us that the people in their separation, as we read about in Ezra 9, that which they separated from God too. They had revival, but now they come back into their sins. In verse number 4 of chapter 13, listen to this. The Bible says, And before this, Elisha bid the priest, having oversight of the chamber of the house of God, was allied unto Tobiah. There's a wrong fellowship that takes place because it's Tobiah that keeps the work of God from going forward. And remember, all this that has taken place thus far was God's people returning to worship, getting back to a proper form of worship, getting busy in the work of God, how that God intended for them to do. But verse 10, the word of God continues of chapter 13, And I perceived the portion of the Levites had not been given them, for the Levites and the singers did that, did the work, uh, which that did the work, were fled, everyone to his field. And counted I with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? All the preachers, the teachers, the priests, should we say, themselves, had left. This is that separation from God. They've now uh, separated, they went from separating unto God to now separating from God. Verse 15, In those days saw I in Judah some treading wine presses on the Sabbath. The Sabbath day... The temple which they built, the place of worship, that returning to worship the work of God which they had built and constructed and all put their hands and their minds to do has been now set aside yet again. And now even the very day of God, the Sabbath, is not even being recognized. The Bible tells us they separated from God. The subject today is not to speak on separation, but to find ourselves back in Ezra 9, now understanding the context of where we are reading. In Ezra chapter 9, if you are, if you are still there, look with me in uh, verse number 2. Ezra chapter 9 and verse number 2. We understand here are the Jews. They had been with God. They separated unto God, but now they've separated from God. They were in revival, but now they've stepped out of this revival. They separated. And what happens? Verse 2. And they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and the rulers have been chief in this trespass. Those are the leaders, by the way. The ones who were supposed to be leading were the first ones to step out and separate themselves from God. What a shame. Where are the leaders in God's house? Amen? The ones who would stand up and do that which is right, not leading the opposite direction. Verse 3, and when I heard this thing, I rent my garment. This is Ezra speaking. I rent my garment and my mantle and plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard and sat down astonished. He's in complete, uh, in complete awe of what's taken place. Completely so struck that he doesn't even know what to think, hardly what to do. That's what that word in its context is implying. Verse 4, then were assembled unto me everyone that trembled at the words of God, of uh, the God of Israel, because of the tra transgressions of those that had been carried away. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I arose from my heaviness, and having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord. And by the way, when one finds themselves out of revival, there's no better place for any person of God, any Christian to be finding themselves back and at on their knees before God. Amen? Amen? Boy, how could we not consider this question 
When was the last time we fell on our knees before God? Say, God, I need, I need revival. I need reviving. I've separated from you. You know, we, we call this an altar with a provided opportunity for us to come down on our knees before God. As much as we'd like to say that that's something that we regularly do in our posture in prayer before the Lord, uh, I, I speak uh, preaching to myself. It's more easily said than done to take the time to do so. When was the last time we responded to the Word of God in such a way that it brought us to an absolute uh, awe, an absolute stopping of everything, and a, a, a tearing apart of, of our entire being so drawn to the end of ourselves as a result of sin? Ezra's positioning himself, speaking for the people. He's seeing himself as one of the people. We've, we've fallen back into sin. You know what's interesting? Verse 6, notice the wording he uses. And I said, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God. You know what the problem is as a result of sin in the world today? It's that there's no blushing. God's people have lost the blush. Amen? There's no shame. Christian, there should be shame in sin. Amen? There should be shame in the very thought of sin, the very consideration of sin, the very thought that sin exists in my life. It should cause me to turn red in the face. It should cause me to be embarrassed. But oh, what a shame it is that God's people can live and allow sin to exist in their individual life, in their homes, amongst their family. As though it's just now a way of life. He says, I'm ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God. For our iniquities are increased over our head. And our trespasses grown up unto the heavens. Since the days of our fathers have we been in a great trespass unto this day. And for our iniquities have we our kings and our priests been delivered into the hands of the kings of the lands. To the sword, to captivity, and to spoil. And to confusion of face as it is this day. And now, this is where I want you to look at verse 8. And now, for a little space, grace hath been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a nail in his holy place that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. I want to bring your attention to three things in this verse. The Bible tells us first, that there's a little space of grace. I want to bring your attention also to verse 8. The nail. The Bible tells us there's a nail. I've circled these in my Bible. I would encourage you to do the same. The end of verse 8. A little reviving. I've entitled the message this morning, A little part of a big work. A little part of a big work. Lord, we thank you that we can be in your word together. And Lord, I pray that as we... Take these next few moments to consider the message you'd have for us. I pray that you speak to our hearts, challenge us, encourage us, help us to strive to, to live in obedience to what you'd have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ezra's reminded of this little part that the Jews, that he himself has had in the big work of God. He sees himself as so small.
so unworthy, so undeserving. And this is what he's just said in verse number 7. God, here you have blessed us. You made us a, 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 a blessed people. You've made us a peculiar people in your eyes. A chosen people. The children of Israel, a chosen people, and yet we committed sin. And yet you still loved us. And yet you still showed grace. And yet we committed further sin. And yet you still loved us. And you still showed grace. And yet we committed further sin. And you even brought destruction upon us. And you destroyed our, nearly our entire nation until all that was left was but a very small remnant. And yet you still had grace. And you still loved us. And you were so gracious that you allowed us to use our hands and our feet and our mind to construct your house and to make it a place of worship, to worship you, the very God in heaven, we, the very unworthy people. And yet we were on fire for you and we were separate into you, but now we've fallen back into sin. Such a little part in a big work. You know, I've learned pretty quickly that as a pastor, a young pastor and a newer pastor, newer to many, all of you, okay, newer to Nebraska, the whole ball of wax, <laughs> it's not so much of something new being done, it's many little new things being done that seem to make a big difference, right? Uh, we, um, when we worked in a Christian school, uh, we had a new principal for a period of time, and uh, there was, uh, he, he didn't last very long, unfortunately, but uh, um, it just, there's a lot of things that clash and things that were happening. Most of what it was, was not so much, but the little lack of attention that he was giving towards certain areas within the school, and it caused a lot of frustration among the teachers. And if you've ever been in a school in any capacity, teachers talk, right? <laughs> And boy, there was just, it, it, it became something where we really had to set the teachers down and try to set a right spirit. But it became such a matter where it wasn't the big thing. It was all the little things that were being overlooked. And all the little things that needed to be given attention to that weren't being given proper attention to. Those little things make a big difference. And I say to you this morning, if I can have your attention, you can make a big difference, though maybe a little work. Though you may be a little person, <laughs> though you may be little in significance, yet God considers you worthy. Praise the Lord for that. Amen? Amen. The Bible tells us, as Ezra tells us, of this little part in a big work, he speaks first of this little space. This little space. Notice what it says in verse 8. And now for a little space, grace hath been showed from the Lord our God. God, you've given us a portion of grace. Grace is something we don't deserve. Grace is something that's freely given. God, you've given us a portion of your grace yet again. We don't deserve it. We're not worthy of it. But you've given us a little grace. That window of grace to do the work of God. To separate unto you. To serve you, to love you, to live for you, to grow in you. That little space, or should we say, the little time. Christian, you know God has given to us but one life. A small space. A small time. A very little bit. And how much of it in this world, in this time, are you doing for God? Are you growing in the Lord? How much of your life is being given towards the work of Christ? It begins first with our own lives of separation. Separating 
from the world and unto God. This world is not our home. We're just a passing through. Amen? This world is only temporary. But in the space of time, that small little space of time that we're given, are we redeeming the time? The Bible tells us redeem the time because the days are evil. We don't have all the time in the world to live for God. We don't have all the time in the world to do the work of God. We don't have all the time in the world to separate unto God. But it is a space of grace. We don't deserve that space. It's an unworthy position. And God's given it to us. And it's freely given. And it's His grace. But it's unfortunate that we can look past it. Christians, they live an entire life without any, but hardly an acknowledgement of the grace of God in that little space. It's only by God's grace that we're still living and breathing today. Amen? It's only by God's grace that we can use our hands and our feet to get here today. Amen? It's only by God's grace that we have anything that we have. It's a little space of grace. But what are you doing with that little space? What are you doing with it? We can live our lives for so many things on this earth, but are we living for Jesus? Are we living for Jesus? Hey, the pastor is the first one to say, yeah, get busy in the church. No, we're not just talking about in the church. We're saying in our individual lives. Because again, this is where it starts. Separation unto God from the world. What am I placing as the priority in life? God says, he is before all things and he is to have the preeminence. God is before all things in existence, but God is to be before all things in our lives. In the very small little space of grace that he's given to us. I've heard a pastor talk about it this way, that little, that, that little dash on a tombstone between the starting and the ending date of your life. That's that little space. It's just a little space. There's not much, there, truthfully, life passes by so fast. How much can we say was done for the, very, for the glory of God? You realize the reviving work is a continual work. We'll look at that further. Galatians 6, verse 10, the Word of God says, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are the household of faith. The attention I want to bring yourself to is that word opportunity. Because here's the truth of the matter. We all have different opportunities. Don't miss this. We all have different opportunities, but we have the same amount of opportunity. Think about that for a second. We all have different opportunities, but we all have the same amount of opportunity. That little space of grace. What are you doing with it? Are we redeeming the time? We're living in, a, as we would call it, a lost and dying world. A world in need of Christ. Are you sharing the gospel with others? When you stand before God, will God say you that you have been found faithful in him. The Bible tells us there's this little space, but not only that little space, but we are reminded of the little remnant. The little remnant. Because that's exactly what a remnant is. It's a very small number, very small group of people. And remember this, that not all the Jews that returned to Jerusalem was of the entire nation that was left. They didn't all come. Only a remnant came. And today, 
There is only a remnant. Yes, there are Christian believers. In a place like Community Bible Church, all across Norfolk, there are Christian believers. But there are only some that choose to be a part of the remnant. What was the work of the remnant? It was the work of God. What is the work of God today? The work of the gospel. Amen? You see, in the Old Testament, the work of God was rebuilding the house of God. That he would be glorified. That he would be given the proper attention. And today, it has not changed. So, Solomon says himself in the book of Ecclesiastes, this is the whole duty of man. <laughs> to obey God and keep his commandments. That God would be glorified through our lives. Through obedience to him. Sometimes people get caught up in, well, I'm going to glorify God. I'm going to praise him all the time and praise, praise, praise. Well, that's great. Praise the Lord. But don't forget to obey him. Amen? Because we can sit and live and just dwell on the blessings of God and forget any of the obedience factor. And it's interesting when you read in the book of Ezra, Ezra says it just how it is. And he says it in two different ways. He begins, excuse me, he begins uh, by first saying, in chapter 6, just keep your finger in Ezra 9, Ezra 6. We're going to look at a few passages. Ezra 6 and verse number 14. This is before the people have given themselves back to sin. What does he say first? He says in verse 14, And the elders of the Jews builded, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo, and they builded and finished it. According, notice, according to the commandments of the God of Israel. According to the commandment of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. You notice there's an order given to things. The command first began with God. They weren't just obeying man. They were obeying God. Amen. But Ezra tells us in, in Scripture that I believe it's in chapter 9 that we find just the opposite. Just the opposite of what God has said previously where they're doing the work of God, yet now they find themselves back into sin. What does he mention? He talks about that commandment. Look at verse number uh, 9. Verse number 9 of chapter 9. Verse 9 of chapter 9 in the book of Ezra. For we are bondmen, yet, in our God, yet our God had not forsaken us in our bondage, but hath extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia, to give us a reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair the desolation thereof, and to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem. And now, O oh our God, what shall we see after this? Here it is, notice. For we have forsaken thy commandments. The Bible tells us that they had just obeyed the commandments. Now they've forsaken the commandments. Turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. I quoted it already, but I want to bring you back to it again. We're talking about this little remnant, okay? This small remnant. In fact, Isaiah in chapter 1 verse 9, he calls it just that. He calls it a very small remnant that God uses. When Ecclesiastes chapter 12, taking in context in mind, I believe Ezra had in his mind, he's writing the book of Ezra through the inspiration of God, he mentions the commandments of God because what was the wisest man on earth? What did he say that was the whole duty of man? Let's begin in chapter 12. And remember, remember who Solomon is, okay? Anything that Solomon could ever desire, he could have. If it was another wife, he could have it. He had hundreds of wives. If it was a possession, he could have it. He had 
anything you could ever dream of, including wisdom itself. But what does the wisest man on earth say? He says, chapter 12, verse 8, vanity of vanities. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 8, saith the preacher, all is vanity. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yea, he gave good heed and sought out and set in order many proverbs. He did many good things. The preacher, he's talking about himself, the preacher sought to find out accountable words. That which was written was upright, even words of truth. The words of the wise are as goads and as nails fastened by the master's assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. And further by these, my son, be admonished of making many books. There is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work. Why are we left upon this earth? To glorify God. How do we glorify God? By obeying his commands. What are God's commands? To go into all the world. Every work, God says, for God shall bring every work into judgment. And every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be bad. What does Solomon say? You're going to stand before God. And what's interesting, notice this, I thought this very, very intriguing, okay? Solomon says, I believe Ezra, proper way of saying it, Ezra is saying really the same thing Solomon said himself. Notice what he says um, from uh, verse 8 through verse 14. He talks about the words of the wise. He says, the words of the wise are as goads and as nails, notice, as nails fastened by the master's assemblies. God uses people to fasten the nails, but, who does, uh, but, but where does this work come from, which are given from one shepherd? If you still have your finger in Ezra 9, look back at Ezra 9 verse 8. Ezra says this, And now for a little space, grace hath been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a nail in this holy place. What does Solomon refer to that nail as being? That nail is the very obedience to the word of God. That nail is that which each of us are given. That nail is that which fastens everything together. That's what the word of God does for us. Amen? The word of God fastens everything else together. When everything else is falling apart, what do you do? You take a nail, you tack it back, you tack it in there. It keeps it together. The Word of God says, this is what keeps it together. Solomon says, this is what ties it all together. The whole duty of man, God has given to us a nail, Ezra says. What are you doing with the nail? You're a part of the remnant. You've been given a nail. You've been given a nail. Your opportunities may differ from the people around you, but you have the same amount of opportunity. Are you doing something with the nail? We are all a part of the work of God, but not all are a part of the remnant. Some are given the nail and they do nothing with it. The Bible tells us there's a little remnant. There's a little space. Not everyone's a part. We, all don't, have the, 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 we don't have all the time in the world. But the Bible also tells us of a little reviving. A little reviving. And you know what's interesting about this passage? is that we're often praying, God, send a great Holy Ghost revival. Give us a big revival. 
Give us the biggest revival we've ever had before. Man, may the church just be bursting at the seams. May my heart just be throbbing for you and on fire for you. And we, we pray for the biggest thing ever. But Paul, or Paul, Ezra, specifically refers to this reviving as being little. A little reviving. Because you know what? If you look in the original Hebrew and you study that word, that word is speaking of something. Catch this. Catch, this is good. It's continual. Little by little by little by little. God, keep reviving me. Little by little. Because that's what I need. I don't need a one-time revival. I need a continual revival. I don't need it all at once. I need it continually. Because I can't live life. This small space of life, this small grace that you've given to me, I can't live life in complete obedience to your word as a part of the remnant with the nail that you've given me. I cannot do so without that little by little reviving. May God help us. Amen? I don't know about you, but, but I'm praying that God will do a little reviving. Amen? A continual reviving. That, that our hearts will be stirred, not just during the week of revival, but continually stirred. And by the way, the stirring doesn't just happen through the preaching, because where does the preaching come from if it's done biblically? Through the Word of God. If you want to keep yourself little by little revived, get in God's Word. Somebody says, I want to be spiritually fed. Get in God's Word. Somebody says, what, do I, what, what is the whole purpose of life? The whole duty of man. To obey God and keep His commandments. Glorify God. Get in the Word of God and obey it. What has God left us on this earth to do? Yes, to glorify Him, but to obey Him in testimony. In the midst of all these things, Ezra's challenging us with the obedience to God of the Gospel. I truly believe you see the Gospel right in the midst of this. How can we not see that we've been given a nail. We've been given a space. We've been a part, we are a part of the remnant. We've been given the opportunity to share the gospel. What is the gospel? Somebody says, well, it's the good news of Christ. Break it down further. What is the gospel? It's the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. If you can't share with someone the gospel, that is, the message of Christ, which contains, in a nutshell, what God has done for the whole world and the way of salvation that he's made for all mankind, then you've not properly shared the gospel. You say, well, what is the right way to share the gospel? Well, how did you come to know Christ? Amen? Begin by sharing with that person how you came to know Christ. Because the same way that, they receive Christ, that you receive Christ is the same way they can receive Christ. Amen? But you can't ever expect to obey any of God's commands. I don't care what it is. It can be bus ministry, it can be nursery, it can be children's church, it, it, it can be a, a regional center ministry, it can be a nursing home, uh, it, it can be outreach ministries. You can't ever properly obey God unless you place yourself in obedience to his word and let his word keep doing little by little by little reviving. May God help us. Let's every head bowed and every eye closed. The message, I believe, is simple. The very fact that we are but a little...